Don't leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. So I'm going to create a new aesthetic reality. Um, all the Piranesa drawings. You can actually build a palace of that in the United States. Well, synthetic materials should just spawn out of the factory, so why don't we do something else? So the Piranesa drawings, and you build a palace, and that's actually not... Nobody resides in that. I just want to walk in that with my... Uh, with my 24-year-old uh, emo platonic love and just stroll around in it and you can stroll around in it too and it's pretty impressive and it's better than a Mona Lisa but you gotta build it sometime Five minutes past 12 midnight with the institution that we were working for that went spiraling down the toilet was that the people who were running it didn't understand that the teachers was where their investment was. Investing in teachers was investing in the business. They didn't value their own, their own biggest investment, which was teachers. And built into the very DNA of what it is that we're building needs to be the notion that teachers are our most important asset. And what we really haven't been doing and the way we haven't been thinking about it is a co-branded experience. So that, yes, there is something about the branding of the school and the institution, but there's also something about the branding of Steve Mahalo and Bill Mead and the other teachers, that Ross Bounds, you know, that the classes that they build, that we build, the, the curriculum that we make and that we deliver and we perform has value because we do it and we perform it. And it's not the same thing when you just hand it off to somebody else. You know, there's another institution that I work at where they want everybody to be teaching the exact same curriculum in the exact same way, which is fucking crazy. Like, that's not even possible. But everybody pretends that it's possible and that it's doable. And, uh, and then they act shocked when they realize that it's not happening. <laughs> Flomists, Steve Mahalo, and Bill Mead talk about the new design school they are opening that they're not supposed to talk about just yet. I just get the same people with new titles show up wandering around the building right. and not even knowing what we taught right. there. 
So in the end, you know, it was about chasing people around for for timesheets, right? So <laughs> yeah, it was. Did you get the right signature? Right. You know, and so you got a bunch of people like chasing people around for pieces of paper because that's what you know the the, the HR people who are running the company thought they needed when that had absolutely nothing to do with what we were actually trying to do with what we were good at doing and proved that we were good at doing Uh, it was crazy you know and we can we can complain about that till the cows come home the sad thing is is that nothing will ever change the fact that you know we had something really great that was killed systematically by bean counters that don't that had no idea what they were even doing I fell into teaching kind of by accident. A friend con- uh, contacted me back in 2000, uh, Kari, and said, do you want to co-teach a class? And I, I thought it was the most miserable experience of my life. And I said I'd never do it again. And then a few years later, I'm building my history class, which has fueled this whole flom thing. And you were one of the first people who took me seriously, although you spend half your time going, he's nuts. <laughs> but more half my time. <laughs> and then when I started working on the masters, that's where I started going, oh, there is a philosophy of what I'm doing. It's it's called constructivist education. And I remember just really strong in the textbook were these words, if you're a constructivist educator, the traditionalists are going to not like you very much. But it basically said traditional education has been around a long time. It involves memorization, test taking, and there's always a pushback, especially at the end of the 1970s when everyone was doing the free to be you and me movement, which I remember going through. But after that, uh, traditional education has been pushed so far that we ended up with no child left behind. We ended up with all this testing stuff that... In order to have just creative literacy, you have to change everything they've been taught. Uh, What we talk about as education has been for a very small minority. For the majority, traditionally, education is about being prepped to be a worker. You and I went into education to change that. Like, we went in as, um, you know, the crazy people. And yeah, I tell people you're crazy, but I mean it as a compliment. You know, like, <laughs> I think the reality is, is that there will always be some people needed to sort of turn the cogs to make things work. And there will always be some people who are satisfied with that. For those people who want to be in the creative fields, we're not interested in just having a mundane job where we do the same thing day after day and month after month and year after year, and eventually you get a gold watch or something. Like, that future's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So we need to sort of prepare ourselves in some different kinds of ways. Well, that's a whole other issue is um, one thing I noticed with kids who learn to take tests. We had a lot of kids coming through who are set to game the system. Uh, I remember one grad during our portfolio review, I, I was one of the reviewers, and I knew him as a grade grubber. This was a guy who sent me a long email wanting his uh, D moved to a D plus on his on his grade form. And students can do that, and it's an interesting skill. But what's that going to do in the workplace? Give me a raise, even though I don't know what I'm doing. That's not going to fly very far. 
Yeah, I mean, those people will always make it in the world because they'll always find somebody willing who's willing to give them whatever in order just to shut them up. Unless they change, later in life, they're not going to look back and go, wow, I did some things that I'm really proud of, you know? And that's, that's, to me, that's always been sort of at the foundation of my philosophy in education is, you know, you put, you get out what you put into it. If all you're going to put in is a bunch of, you know, grubbing for grades or like trying to cheat your way through, what are you going to get out of it? Well, really not much of anything. That's kind of the reality. And sure, you might end up with a degree, you know, with some letters after your name, but unless you can come to a place where you're ready to really turn it around. And I have had those students. I've had those students that are just terrible students. Like they don't like school. They don't like doing school projects, but you know, I know them, I've gotten to know them enough as people that they're going to be, that I know that they're going to be fine in the workplace. I can think of a number of students who are working in the creative fields now and they're doing great there because they're, they're where they should be. And school just wasn't their thing. Um, so I, I don't know. I think the surprising thing for me, and maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, is that I've seen all sorts. You know, I've, I've seen students come in that are like super talented super hardworking. And then I've seen them over the course of their college education become lazier and sloppier and more miserable and, and, and like, just like, what are you doing? And then I've seen the opposite. I've seen students come in and you're like, this student is never going to be a designer. They don't have like an ounce of talent. And then by the end, they're rock stars, you know? And then we've seen everything in between where students kind of come in high and then go low and then come back high or come in low and then get high and then go back low. You know, like we've seen, we've seen it all. We've seen everything. I think it's fascinating. You know, I think that pathway is fascinating and understanding sort of where people are in that pathway and finding those things that they're good at. You know, like you've said, you know, everybody's good at something and finding those things that they're good at. You know, I've always been inspired by the way you say that because there are, I've had students and I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this student? And I remember Steve Mahalo saying, everybody's good at something. It's about finding what that thing is and then letting them use that as a foundation to build more on top of that. You know, I think, I think that's really a great thing. It's, it's kind of interesting, but it's, it's a Bauhaus philosophy. If you go back to it, everyone is innately talented. Just go listen to our Bauhaus Blue episode. Uh, I remember hearing that. And it's, what was great for me is I've had people my whole life telling me I'm nuts. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I even had a, a really close friend in college sit me down with Microsoft Excel and said, you have to learn this because this is the job you're going to get because you're too crazy to get a job anywhere else. I think you're going to say, sadly, he was right. Uh, I look at Excel and I cringe at this point. But um, <laughs> what gets in the way, as I like to draw on the board, is fear and ego. Fear and ego, two things you need to survive, but fear and ego are going to shut you down. I have to be right is the ego of fear. I can't ever do this. And uh, I mean, if, if you listen to the whole season of the podcast right now, you'll see that keeps coming up because I've been interjecting it in the episodes that that will shut you down immediately. We were teaching at the school for 10, 11 years, and we kept getting students who had no idea what they were good at that just sort of fumbled into something, discovered what they were doing, 
And then, boom, look what, in fact, one of them's our business partner now, now that I think about it, because my big honor was tearing up her drop slip. And now she's uh, actually making this school come together that we're not supposed to mention. You know, what's kind of interesting is teaching, it's, even though I'm extremely sad that our institution, you know, got shut down. Not not by our fault, I should point out. It, it was upper management, which, which is another thing I learned about education. This was a great line. Teaching is not a profession because we answer to people who usually are not teachers. Oh, we are not managed by teachers. We're managed by uh, lawyers and business people and other things like that. Yeah, I mean, we saw this company make one bad decision after another for year after year for, for five years. And, you know, eventually you can only do so much of that before you kill your own business. And Yeah, I was like, they were determined to lose their best people. And not only did they lose them, they humiliating them on their way out. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was absurd. But... The the opportunity that that's afforded me is now I teach in these different places, and it's very interesting to compare these different institutions and the cultures in these institutions. One institution that sits on a hill and is, you know, very prestigious, and students are, that go into that institution get get in there because they're very good at school, those students I notice aren't any less damaged really than the students who are going to other institutions that are, you know, much easier to get into. So the difference is a couple of things. The students going into the sort of very prestigious institution, they have more, uh, more safety nets so they can take more risks and not feel like everything's going to go to crap if things fall apart. Another thing I notice is a difference is that they tend to, on the whole, think that everything's going to work out for them, and they have a lot of confidence because mostly it has for them in their lives, whereas for a lot of the students at these other institutions, they're much much less likely to just think, you know, to just have that kind of confidence because they've had things not work out for them, and they've sort of seen kind of the downside of that or of the risks of what happens if things don't work out. And a lot of times I feel like my job at some of the community colleges is to tell students, you know, you may not feel worthy, but you're not any less worthy. You're not any less talented. You're not any less smart. You need to sort of dive in and have some confidence that what you're doing can be great. And maybe it's not great yet. A lot of times those students have a lot of um, strikes against them already. Uh, So they've got challenges around being differently enabled in a physical way or in a cognitive way. You know, there there are opportunities out there for everybody if you can find the things that you're good at and sort of build on those foundations and continue to be exploratory. There was something you said when you first got your uh, director promotion and then suddenly you weren't in the classroom anymore. And this this was very important to me that education is in the classroom. That's where it happens. All this other stuff is sort of a, a structural system that allows things to take, take place and be executed. But really it comes down to the interaction in the classroom. And that's the same thing with live teaching 
online teaching, which we've been looking at different modes of how that can work better than uh, that system is so easy to game. Yeah. So we are working on changing stuff like that, but it really does happen in the classroom. And one of, one of the big eye openers I used to tell students, and uh, this, this was a big thing for me. And this goes back to high school. I remember I had a brilliant teacher in high school who had a degree in a government who was teaching English because that's the only classes they would give him. The big problem in education is teachers teach the courses that they are given whatever they could get their hands on. And there are so many people just climbing over each other to get those courses that you don't end up having what we're going to do, which is teachers teaching what their specialty is, teachers that are actually teaching what they're good at. And there's little things happening in the world, but for the most part, if you have a class and uh, you thought the teacher didn't know what they were doing, chances are they didn't because they ended up being thrown into a class that is not their specialty, (laughs) specialty of someone else. And that's how most of it works. But if you think about it, we're going to have a whole slew of teachers that are teaching what they're good at. And I would say it's for a change based on what I see at so many schools. What I realized as a director was my job was to keep the shit off of your plate. Keep the shit (laughs) off of the teacher's plate. So you could do what you're good at without having to worry about this other administrative crap, you know, and... I think what happens in a lot of schools is people get, you know, get the promotion to be a director and they think they're the boss and everybody's supposed to do what they tell them when in fact it's the other way around. Like I'm working for you. Like that's my job as a director is to work for you so that you can do that direct to education where, you know, you're the one that's actually interacting with the students and that's the important part. And to make that happen in such a way that, A, you feel valued and feel like you can do what you want to do without, um, and what you need to do without, with as little interference as possible, uh, you know. And unless I go crazy and just start slapping them a lot, which uh, I think about sometimes. Like they kept adding layer of layer and layer of things that were like, oh my God, now I have to figure out a way to keep this off of Steve Mahalo's plate. You know, eventually I got laid off. Thank God I did because it got even worse after that. Okay, let's see here. Can we tease that there's a new school on the horizon? I think we can tease that there's a hole that's been left by a certain other institution closing. And um, there's a lot of students and faculty. Um, There's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of interest for people who want to work in the creative industries. Um, So I think there's a real opportunity for us to look for ways of getting that, you know, pulling together the people with that expertise and how to get students there together um, in maybe a space that we might be able to find somewhere um, to, (laughs) you know, I like how you say that because you showed me the map of the space. Oh, wait, we're just teasing. Yeah, we have a map. We have a potential space if it works out, Um, a potentially very great space. Um, And other with a lot of room. And and I want to take 
these sort of vault section. Uh, I want that as the recording studio for Radio Flom because all these outside noises are starting to drive me nuts. Oh my god! Yeah, the, I, I haven't been in the building, but <laughs> I've heard from others what it's like, and it's uh, it sounds both creepy and fascinating. So it will be able um, to. I, I know that style of architecture, so if you go look at my mood board, you see that I, I've been building things on there. Uh, hypothetically, again, we're just teasing. Yeah, yeah I, you know, hopefully <laughs> well, this is all going to come together. We don't really know yet exactly what sort of timeline or exact how. Uh, maybe next year, maybe this fall. We're not quite sure. Well, not as soon as this fall. <laughs> Certainly not as soon as the yeah, fall okay. of 2019. Um, maybe 2020, maybe by the end of spring 2020, uh, you know, in that space. But there's no reason why we can't do some things in some other spaces. We just need the synergy yeah. to kind of draw it all together and into something cohesive. But we have all of the pieces in place, basically, to make it happen. I mean, I get the question, why did you become a teacher? That comes up every now and then. And I usually settle on uh, what one of our business partners has kind of told me. I'm good at helping people find their purpose. And if you look at K through 12, the idea that you could go into a creative field and actually make money at it really still blows the minds of people. Because as you know, I do beginning courses. That's my specialty. I get them right out of high school. And then I convince them it's not crazy to go into these fields. Or as I, as I said in our last episode, it's um, thanks, thanks to Holly breaking this out uh, with me, 20% uh, assignments, 80% therapy. So it's a big switch over going, look, this is not the school you're used to. This is not the learning you're used to. And then look what you could do. And then my far reaching goal on all this is let's go change the world. Let's go do some cool stuff. And the cool thing between you, me, and the others that we work with, uh, we have graduates who have gone on to amazing things. I mean, Tim right now is designing for the biggest chef That's in the awesome. world. I can't tell you how many times I talked to students that we had later on in their schooling and the number of times your name came up. It was Steve Mahalo, Steve Mahalo's fundamentals class. It was Steve Mahalo in the summer studios that, you know, when he got on the table and did the crazy stuff that made me really kind of turn on to this stuff like that, you know, those kinds of things make a difference. And especially since they're not getting any of that stuff in K-12 public schools. There's, there's just those students come in and a light bulb turns on and then we take it and run with it. I mean, when I say we have all of the pieces in place, one of the pieces we have in place that nobody else has is we have all of these grads working in the industry around the area. And by area, I mean a pretty big area because we're not just talking about Sacramento, but also... They do really well in LA. Yeah, uh, we have I mean, some in Seattle. You know, and the fact that you or I can call upon probably a half dozen people, each of us, on any given day, and they're willing to come into our class and talk to students about what they're doing and about what they're excited about because of the relationship we have with them and because of the trust we've built. Like you think about what we've done with the ad club in Sacramento, you know, it's been a very casual unofficial pipeline for students to go from being in school to 
internships to jobs. The person in charge of the student outreach over there is one of our students. <laughs> and she's doing a great job. It's got to continue in one way or another. We need to find ways in which we can make that happen. This season, Radio Flomer has been talking about the Bauhaus, a revolutionary art and design school founded in Germany 100 years ago. And it so happens. This fall in Sacramento, Flomist Steve Mahalo will be teaching a new section of his rather popular Bauhaus-themed preliminary course. At New Media 324, Digital Design starts the 27th of August 2019 and features online assignments using the Adobe Illustrator application as well as Malevich's approach to Black Square and the non-objective world, Futurism, Orphism and Cubism. With once-a-week classroom meetings at the American River College Natomas campus. Learn some software and some Bauhaus. At New Media 324. At American River College. Sacramento, California. Register online at arc.losrios.edu. You are listening to Radio Flaw. And here is the brand new release from Wake the Fuck Up Resonate.
Less is more. From the very beginning, I was a proponent of the back-to-basics approach. Each region developed a style of its own. With today's methods, the face of the country can be changed very rapidly, for better or for worse. And my name is Amanda Sanchez. I am the founder and executive director for Design Week Sacramento. Just so people can follow along if they want to pull up any stuff, where's a, a good place to find information on Design Week? So everything is on our website, designweeksacramento.com. And you can also find us on social media under Design Week Sac. Cool. And so do you want to explain a little bit of what Design Week is? Sure. So Design Week is a week-long event series that will showcase and connect local uh, designers. So it starts May 11th, 2019, and then it goes through May 17th. So there will be panels, lectures, exhibits, mixers, workshops, and tours throughout the week. Where, where's some of the like main location all this is going down? So our opening party will start at Urban Roots, and that's at 12 p.m. on Saturday, May 11th. There will be a pop-up shop with about 12 different vendors that'll start at noon. And then our opening party officially starts at 6 p.m. at Urban Roots in their barrel room. Cool, and, and this is the first year for Design Week Sacramento, right? Yes. What kind of inspired you to get all this going? So I am a, gra a freelance graphic designer. I live in the suburbs, nowhere close to downtown Sacramento. And I was feeling very isolated from the design community downtown. All kind of around the same time, I started going to a bunch of net networking events. And I realized that there was a lot for creatives in Sacramento, but not really a ton for local designers. Per se. At the same time, I was sending out my portfolio to a bunch of different agencies and I just kind of felt overwhelmed by the amount of agencies that are here and the amount of designers that are here. And I was confused. I was thinking of a way that we could get everyone together. So when I started going to these networking events, I realized that other designers downtown and around the Sacramento area were all feeling very felt kind of isolated from the community as well and there didn't really seem the general thought was there wasn't a strong design community here so in around the same time i was looking up a trip to portland and i saw that they had a design week in portland and then i started to research more design weeks and saw they had them in san francisco los angeles a bunch of cities all over the world. So I looked up when the last design week was in Sacramento and how could I get involved? And that's when I found that there wasn't one yet. We'd had a couple of one or two day conferences, but never for a full week. So in March of last year, I did a 30 second pitch for it at Creative Mornings to see if I could get anyone interested or if anyone was currently working on something like that. And that's when it started, March of last year. Yeah, I can imagine that there's probably a lot of people in the like local area that are really stoked for this kind of thing and to get involved. What's a, some good way for people to get involved? So there's quite a few ways. Um, you can 
volunteer at our events and the sign up form for that is on our website again at designweeksac.com. All of our events are pretty much scheduled right now. So if you wanted to organize an event during design week, we can certainly, if as long as it's a design focused, we can put it on the calendar and help promote it. And then other than that, it would be through sponsorships. And obviously just going to the events is the best way to get involved. Yeah, to really show your support and, you know, really just take in all the the cool stuff that's going down. Uh, I was reading that there are like certain themes to the days. What's uh, the story behind that? Like what's going on different day to day? Yeah. So our main themes are from Monday through Friday. Uh, Monday is our design and business theme. So all of our, most of our events on that day have a business perspective to it. Our big event for that day is our design and business of design panel that is led by Megan Phillips at Honey and that's at Beatnik. Um, That event is already sold out, but there is a wait list open. Uh, And then there's like a UX and product design workshop that day. There's a business ethics workshop and a, and a cafe chat that night. So there's like a lot of design and business events. And then Tuesday is our design and policy day. It's more about how policy affects design and how design can affect policy. So our, we have a pop-up panel with California Groundbreakers that night, 6 p.m. that will talk about civic tech and how design and technology can affect our local government. And um, we also have Adriana Ariaga, who is hosting a workshop on poster design for vulnerable uh, communities. Um, Wednesday is our education day, and we're having a few events based around that. Our biggest event that day is our panel that is geared towards high school students and anyone interested in the career in the path of design. We'll have faculty from local colleges and a couple of design firms will be there. And then that night, we're going to have a student exhibit at Uptown Studios featuring local high school students. Thursday is our design and food day. So we're doing Bite of Design at Canon, a Design with Beer in Mind event. And then Friday is our Design and Community Day. And that's where we're having our community panel featuring the founders of Creative Mornings, Creativity Plus, Blog Block, SAC Desco, and Design Week Sacramento. And we'll have a closing party at Unseen Heroes that night to close it out. So uh, what day are you most excited for? Oh, that's a good one. Um, all of them? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to pick one because there's such cool events going on in every day. Um, Is your work going to be featured on, on some of the, the stuff? No, not this year. Most of our events were actually pitched to us from different uh, designers and design agencies. There's only been a couple events that we actually planned and scheduled, um, but most of them were pitched to us from the beginning. Well, that's pretty cool. To, it's already really incorporating the whole, you know, community all just right from the start. Yeah, it's great. With the education day, you're you're getting like different high schools and stuff. That's pretty cool. I remember, you know, right out of high school, that's what I was actually headed into was graphic design. But I was in a town that's a mile by mile. So there wasn't really opportunity there. So what would you, you know, say to any of the high schoolers that are listening to this now, but aren't quite sure if they want to go? Like, uh, do you want to elaborate on some of the opportunities and what's going to be going on there? Sure. Um, 
So I actually didn't even know about graphic design until I got into my college newspaper uh, production class. And that's where I saw the production side of the, of the newspaper. And that's how I got super interested in, I would say, borderline obsessed with uh, a design. Um, but I didn't even know about it in high school. And my co-director, Lauren, and I were talking about it. And neither of us knew about it in high school. And so we... We're thinking like what a kind of event we could do that would help high school students who may not know about design or who may be in taking design classes at high school but unsure of how they wanted to go with that. So actually what inspired our high school panel was I got an email from a teacher in Oakley who was wanted to bring her students to uh, design week. And so we were trying to think of an event that would be really good for them. And so we started working with Don Benton at Sacramento City College on developing this panel for high school students. Um, and then we're opening it up to people that are either changing uh, degrees or just want to learn more about uh, the design program. So there will be uh, John Forrest from Sac State, Marcy Wacker from Sierra College, Don Button from Sac City, Craig Martinez from American River College, I believe someone from UC Davis is coming. Um, the, all just to talk about the different programs that they offer for graphic design. We have someone coming from Threefold Communications and a couple of other uh, design firms to come and just talk about what type of career paths there are uh, for design and then Uptown Studios was kind enough to open up their space for high school students who want to exhibit their work there that night. Do you already have like a lot of submissions from high schoolers that uh, will be participating in it? We've been working with Dale at New Tech High School and he's going to get his class to submit their work. That teacher from Oakley, Lori, she's getting her class to submit their work. Um, so we have a couple of different classes uh, that are already doing it, but there's always room for more. And there's not a application or a submission guidelines or anything. As long as it's a design work, then we're happy to, sh uh, to show it. It's pretty cool, especially because, you know, like the, the younger generation, they're going to have such different ideas of what design is. And even, you know, if they're, you know, new to the medium and not as polished, it's still, you know, showing innovative thinking of like what the next direction will be and everything. Sure. And we're inviting the local community to come out to Uptown Studios that night, too, just to see so they can get an idea of what the future of design is looking like and what these projects these uh, kids are already working on. And speaking of like the, the next like generation or anything, I imagine like technology is going to be heavily influenced on that. So imagine that they probably want to check out at least the Education Day, but also Design and Policy Day the, the day before then, too. Oh, yeah. Um, I think we've learned recently that design can have such a huge impact on how people vote on politics. More and more of the younger generation is starting to get involved with that, which has been super cool to see. And I think they'll finally, they'll be able to see how their work can affect people. Yeah, it's pretty amazing uh, once you start looking into it all, just how impactful design can be, how it can really just change people's mind and, you know, draw attention in different areas. And if you are able to, you know, create that design, it's really nice to know that you have an influence over people to bring attention to things that you think are important. Yeah, I think this is, I think 
even with so, uh, social media and everything like that, people are more and more able to share their work and to inspire people or change someone's perspective. It's pretty amazing when you think about how much your work can impact uh, someone or something. Do you have any projects that you uh, are particularly proud of that kind of had that impact and everything? Yeah, so I actually submitted a poster uh, for a Power to the People campaign um, last year, and it was picked uh, as one of the, I believe, 50 posters that were um, chosen as part of the Women's March. And so they were used throughout uh, the women's marches of last year. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's actually a really big thing. Yeah. Um, and actually, Adriana, who's teaching the poster workshop, her poster was also picked too. So that was pretty cool. Well, it's good to know that, you know, these events will show things that have actually already made a difference and made it out to these, you know, cool events and everything. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be really cool just to show the amount of talent that we have in Sacramento too um, and to see to have us all come together for one week and show what we've been working on and explore new types of design and so it's really cool yeah well there you go Sacramento listeners you have something to look forward to and to check out um, so for our non-Sacramento based listeners is uh, there any advice you have for people that are in a community or, or area that don't have anything like this? How to maybe get something started? I would start with just reaching out to your local uh, design firms um, and seeing if they want to work with you on hosting an event. Uh, we went really big for this first year and you can definitely be on a much smaller scale to begin with. Um, if you just start reaching out to local uh, designers, even doing a meetup with different designers and the community is a great way to start. And then you can branch out from there. Yeah. And then get, you know, a, a world listened podcast like Radio Farm to, to talk yeah, about. See, there you yeah. Go. <laughs> uh, so is there anything else you, you want to pitch or throw out there? I think, I mean, for Design Week Sacramento, that's pretty much it, just to go on our website, check out the events. Um, we have also events in Grass Valley, Eldorado Hills. So you don't have to go, have to live in Sacramento to go uh, to these events. And then um, we are planning our Design Week for next year. So if you want to get involved for next year, this is a great time to start. I think that's, I think that's good. Kenneth, what is the frequency you're listening to? Radio Flom. How do you feel about that whole college scam thing? The college scam thing? Yeah. With all the rich people paying to get their kids in. I mean, that's not really news. That's rich people pay to get their kids in all the time. I was thinking about that. Like, isn't that just a a standard yeah. assumption? Yeah. Like, it's just now they have proof and that they did a really bad job of it. So that's funny. It was kind of funny. And it's like, um, it devalues a lot of people that went to college on sports recommendations. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like, my kid sucks at sports, so I'm going to take her head and put it on a soccer player, and she's going to get on the soccer team. And then she's on the same team with that person who worked their butts off to get to that school to play soccer. Yeah. And it's clearly this woman does not know what she's doing. Yeah. So she drags down the team, drags down everybody. You know? I don't think they even would participate. They got there on the scholarship, but then they didn't actually play. That's even worse, because then you're just taking a spot from someone that deserved it. Yeah, that's true. I think the thing that drives, like, I have a really hard time understanding is all of these parents pay like they're the ones actively paying for their children's future. Like hearing someone say how their parents are paying for their college, part of me just gets really bitter about it. Well not even paying for the college, they're paying to get her get them into, into college. college. But like that should be on that individual's own merits. Mm-hmm. Like, you shouldn't have your parents holding your hand at all for any of your future. Like, they took care of you for 18 years. That is where their responsibility ends, and then yours is supposed to begin. Well, I'm not sure how, yeah, how in on it the children were. And that's what they were saying, too. Like, there were some kids that necessarily know but my thing is like how would they not know you know you have to take sats why are they flying you all the way out to texas to take them some of them were flown to freaking texas to take their sats and then like how these kids might be sheltered they don't know they're just like i'll just do what mommy and daddy tell me to do i think they're (laughs) i think that we're giving them a naivete that they don't actually have that's true too i don't know any of these people by name so i couldn't Mm -hmm. tell you yeah, I just, it just, it, it just gets under my skin, I think. I think, and the big thing that I think gets under my skin is the whole parents taking care of their kids after they're adults. I, I don't get it. Well, does adulthood start at 18? Yeah, it does. <laughs> for everybody? Just starts yeah. up? Unless, unless that person, that individual has some sort of a serious learning disability or developmental <laughs> disability. Like, yeah, it starts at 18. Mm-hmm. Like, you are responsible for yourself entirely at that point. Legal- legally, you are, so therefore you have See, to. I think we come from different families. Where my, my family was very bad at raising me. <laughs> so I don't have a learning disability. I just wasn't taught things that a normal adult should know by 18, like how to take care of themselves. I'm not saying I knew how to do everything. I was that person in a dorm that I put I put dish soap in the laundry mm-hmm. uh, and I've just figured if I did an itty bitty amount it wouldn't super suds. That that was a mistake. That was that was dumb. But I'm an adult and I made a mistake and I learned from it. Yeah, okay. My dad comes from the philosophy of like you're eighteen, you're done, you're out. And my mom was just more caring about that. Sounds so, like a backhanded. She's well, just yeah. more caring. Yeah, it is a backhanded compliment. <laughs> Why? I'm just. But she's not the one that took me in when when I when I was 18 and didn't have anywhere to go. That's true. So. Yeah, no, my parents they counted down the days. Uh-huh. Um, but you, I feel like you're more prepared to do something. And you had a plan. You were gonna go somewhere. Uh, I mean, I had a plan, and then I had a contingency plan, but... Like, yeah, I didn't have any of that. That just, like, blows my mind, though. 
Like, yeah, I don't even know. What oh to say. Ah. No, because like everybody was supposed to. I even remember, like, I don't know why, but like back in high school, there was a giant tag board for all the seniors. And the guidance counselors would find out what everybody's plan was after college. And then you got put up into different parts of this this tree map thing. Uh, it sounds very 1984-ish. It was, it was like the weirdest uh, social experiment ever. Because you could see people who were trying to get into college, who had already gotten into college, were already doing all this stuff. And then you could see essentially the people that they are just getting their high school diploma and that was it. And they would be like at the bottom of the tree. Like, literally. And then everybody else is growing out and yeah. going all these places. That's yeah. okay, Billy. You're a root. And roots are important. <laughs> they hold the tree up. <laughs> you're, you're basically telling some students, like, you're going to graduate from high school and you're garbage. Yeah. That's pretty funny. I'm yeah, glad we didn't it have was, that. Yeah, no, we had that. And I was personally... Everybody started down there until they let the guidance counselors know what they were doing afterwards. So as soon as I got the scholarship to go out to San Francisco, like, I, like, I was just like, I'm over here, motherfuckers! Nobody else was near me. There was, like, me as an art student going Uh to San Francisco, and then another person going to England. Oh, okay. And And then then everybody else was going to Madison, you? Madison, most most people were going to Madison or Whitewater or, um... Good old Whitewater. Chicago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chicago University of Art. No, just Chicago. Actually, one person went to the Chicago University of Art, um... But I had a couple of friends that went to the University of Chicago. It was mm-hmm. real hard to get in. And they got in through the science department, I think. It's hard to get in. It's hard to stay because it's so cold. It's kind of like, I always thought it was the equivalent of somebody trying to get into uh, San Diego in the science department. What? Isn't San Diego, like, really hard to get into? Yeah. San Diego. Or Berkeley. Berkeley. Berkeley better for the Northern California community. Probably. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of yeah. trying to get into Berkeley. Sacramento is to... Your hometown. You mean Madison? Madison. As Madison is to Chicago. I don't know. Mm, Sacramento is to Madison as Chicago is to Berkeley. Yeah. Maybe. I don't mean, it was a long time ago. I'm not good at those kind of things. That's why I got the school to career award in high school. Really? Yeah. What is that? Wait, what is that? What is what? What is the school to career award? You never know this? No. What is this? Um, I didn't realize it till later. Because I was just a kid in high school, but that was like, here's a guy that's never going to make anything of himself. He's going to go from this school straight to, like, the Roots thing you're talking about. I was that. Really? Yeah. Oh, no. I, I don't know where that thing went. It was on oh, a certificate. Oh, you got a certificate. <laughs> yeah. I got a certificate that says uh, schools to career winner or something like that. And that's based off of your peers? No. Or teachers. I think it's teachers. Like the teachers give it out to one kid. Or some kids. Oh, I don't know. No. It's a long time ago. Show them. Show them all with my, my huge uh, college debt. I don't have any of my high school uh, yearbooks. Yeah. But I was told by someone that in the senior, our senior one, I was put down as most likely to succeed no. <laughs> yeah. No. Way. Apparently, I was so aloof yeah. by the last couple of years of high school that people just, they're like, oh, she's leaving. So she's clearly leaving she our small town. She made it to San Francisco. She made, yeah. she made it to California. She did she's, it. She succeeded. She succeeded. That's all I had to do. That's really out. all I had to do is get out of the state. Get out of the state. Get to California. And yeah. that's success. 
And it could be the you could be middle class California, and they'd be like, "Wow, Jess made it. She's the most successful person of our high school year." <laughs> like I always know. A boy ran past their table. You shouldn't run in the lunchroom. Then lunchtime wouldn't be as much fun as it is. And now, Luis Hernandez dishes about attending a fail for profit art school, and other things, with Blue. We are products of an American education. We are off by a few years for sure, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I'm definitely older than you, but uh, no, not that's not the part I was saying, right? Too, I said like oh. you, you were schooled in America primarily, right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, primarily. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> having having a, a, an uncle who's from England for most of my young life, uh, definitely hearing about their education system has been prevalent. So that that's the one that I point to the most. That like they don't have Fs, they don't have fail. Yeah. You know the, the Simpsons episode where Bart gets a, a F. But a high F, a high F, you know, it's like, and, and I remember like, if you've ever gotten high F, it's like, I An did F the plus. work. Yeah. It's, it's but it's F the plus. number. Arithmetic was my jam when I was a kid. And then they took it out of the, they took it out of our arithmetic. We had arithmetic workbooks. That's not a thing anymore. Right. Um, and I also, yeah, that too. Uh, but, 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 to, and, and word problems, right. Uh, there are word problems that I can do because they employ that uh, aspect of imagination. Timmy has five apples, whatever has 10 apples. How do you, how many fucking apples? It's like that. That's you're putting it in terms that I can understand. I'm also a huge fan of physics. I think Ooh, physics yeah. is dope. Yeah. Universe is dope. If you yeah. were to put a, 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 an equation in front of me that is purporting to explain something, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. That's great that you understand it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it seems like all the fun in math is to be had either in the beginning or at, like towards the, the the pinnacle of math. You know, so certainly physics and science, and like I like the idea that scientists are just like big kids who are like trying to figure always out. Always trying how, to figure something out. Yeah. yeah, you know, here I am in the middle. You know, algebra wasn't that fun. You know, geometry wasn't that fun. You know, like I, I like drawing graphs, but yeah, maybe, geometry is kind of fun theoretically. If you programmed your Texas Instruments um, uh, calculator, that was cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, five one three eight zero zero eight. Yeah. So, what was your introduction to physics? I don't know. Um, I, like, I have a favorite physicist. I love Brian Cox. Oh my Brian god, Cox Brian Cox is one of my Cox. favorite human beings. Love him. Right? Love him. Next to you know the 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 Carl Sagan's and the Neil deGrasse Tyson's and anyone else who used their life force to question and try mm -hmm. to understand the universe that we yeah. live in. They're, they're almost wow. like spiritual men in the way they talk about science and numbers, you know? Definitely. Yeah. To they're me, the, they definitely are. They're the new clergy. I mean, like I'm putty in their hands. Like, tell me more. American education used to be the gold standard, you know? When? Oh God, well, that makes well, me laugh. Well, it was an industrialized society. The most industrial country let's, teaches let's, the world. Hang on. Parenthetical. This was these, all of these uh, concepts that we were talking about, like they stemmed from, Germans fleeing World War II, yes, you know, the yes. First World War. I feel like the majority of what makes up our education system, if anybody were to actually look at it, none of the, all of those people were immigrants from other cultures, other societies with other long pre-existing education systems. Yeah. America yeah. is like we were talking about, you know, in our in our myth podcast conversation. Uh, the the it's new, it's young, 
it's an amalgamation. And we have to remember that, I feel like. That is something that we have got to constantly remember and realize. Yeah. But how? You know, because now, well, now yeah. we look at our results, we use all of these testings and, and we and we view ourselves what are we we're like the 50,000th in english or whatever like we're, we're down there in the world we're 17th in educational performance okay and what about math uh, and science let's see Pretty google i could just lie a lot more <laughs> you know and like i well you know we're talking about like where we were truly educated i was educated in the library you know like so um, was i yeah. yeah public school didn't do anything for me my public library educated me yeah, I mean, like, um, I learned a lot more at our for-profit university at the library <laughs> than I did in the for-profit classrooms. Our for-profit library was amazing. Which is another thing. Like, we, yeah, we weirdly live in a time where some of our teachers were just like, I don't know, Google it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've spent uh, $1,000 a day to be in this classroom. Now, here's a Oof. free resource. But, I mean, yeah, there was a moment where, like, I was in a class with a newer instructor because we lost our old instructor to whatever, forces unknown. And they weren't familiar with the program. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to even name programs. But I, I was figuring things out in the classroom and helping the other students at that yeah, like, in real yeah. time. Uh, yeah. But what I was trying to say is we we are now the people because we were some of the last that we can talk about this school in its life. But now we're talking about it from a perspective of yeah, it's no longer there. So we could we could make shit up if we wanted to. We could pretend it was the most prestigious you know, uh, educational, uh, uh, facility, whatever, enterprise, what's the word I'm looking for? What is a school? State of the art. Well, a school, you know, four walls and a library. Um, that's a school to you. Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, I mean, and then, and then you have wacky teachers. I mean, that's what, well, I suppose in, in institution, in the, I think is the yeah, word I'm looking for. It's an institution. And just a bunch of screwballs who, who like anime and, and, and dating people that they shared that in common with. Oh Lord. So now we're getting into the weird. Okay. Those so yeah. Were so weird. Made us do that thing. We're a bunch of weird people who just showed up at a school. We're all there for similar reasons. Not the same. Get up introduce yourself who are you why are you here what do you do whatever uh, the common theme is, is somebody getting up going hi i'm a weirdo i you know i i'm from i went to this school i was the weirdo there and after about the fifth class i had i was like look i don't want to hear this story anymore you're in a you're in the building of weirdos we've all come to the same place this is the mecca for fucking weirdos yeah. no what was your introduction to to the to, on that first day of class how would you introduce yourself i mean i just said my name uh -huh. Um, I, I've been an artist my whole life and I'm here to, you know, just continue. Right. I, it yeah. was never any grand sort of thing because I was, I'm always, I've always been a very present person. So I'm like, I'm here. This is it. There's not more. There's not less. This is it. Like, but let me, let me, I can't wait to hear about all of you people and who you are and what, you know, and our school is an amalgam of weirdos, uh, from different age groups too. Like we mentioned, you're older than me, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're in well, a different yeah. age category, right? Yeah, I was I was retraining from a different field. I mean, I, I had I was my background was a, you know, I was a, a I worked in engineering and and uh, education prior to, to design, and when I found myself in design, I was like, oh, I'm very passionate about this. I'm going to study at a place that comports uh, to yeah, yeah comports <laughs> you know because again, um, well yeah, you can't the idea that you can't teach our creativity. <laughs> oh god yeah the self-taught artist you know <laughs> yeah you can't teach creativity which is true and that was a spiel that i got a lot from a lot of my teachers yeah but you certainly can't teach uh you know uh, a creative workflow you could teach uh, a discipline you could you know you could teach um 
God, I think the uh, history of art is teaching creativity too, but that's just me. Yeah, well, it, yeah. It, show me things that I don't know or inform me of other things that are in the same realm. And that's teaching. I mean, that's I, what is art, but things that are, you know, we, we started with cave paintings mm-hmm. of the things that we saw. Well, when, when um, I wait, the everything point, is stolen from something. Yeah. Yeah, exa- exactly. But the selling <laughs> point of, 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 you know, our for-profit school was that our <sighs> teachers are working. Yeah. Well, yeah, but our teachers were working professionals. Okay, that that was that was know. a big selling point for me yeah. too. Absolutely, and yeah. all of our teachers were they were, they were in the field yeah. that they yeah that they were and, teaching and, from. And again, I will um, uh, uh, you know speak ill of a an office building that was made to look like a school. I will definitely speak ill of expensive classes and resources that didn't you know live up to their expectations. But I will never speak ill of the teachers that really took their time. Same. And and you know and, and they were so professional, like they were professional. They weren't, um, well, so many, well, this is also an obituary. Yeah. I knew I I needed to progress my artistic and creative endeavors or whatever. And that the, what seemed like the natural progression is to go to school for it. Right. That's, we've had that our whole lives. We we come from generations of you go to college after high school. That is just what you do. Yeah. If Um, you haven't gone to schools, like when will you? Right. Sort of. Yeah. It was just a, it's a natural progression. And then until, recently i feel like Very especially recently yeah growing up it's kind of like do i need to go to college especially it's, now that it's so expensive which i think will be a weird do? it's like how sub, can I, yeah. I think the prevailing uh, wisdom at the time and, and again you could talk about four years four years three years ago years. Being like like that is the past we we don't even recognize that anymore you know so it's like um yeah the school is an expense that you must afford that you can't, you can't afford not to have this, you know, student loan. That's, that's the myth, right? Yeah, that's oh, the, you have Lord, to go yeah. to higher education after you're done being educated. But because of um, the, the fucking society that we live in now, you better start making money um, yeah. soon. And so a lot of people started realizing higher education was not something they needed to waste their time on because we yeah. need laborers. We do need yeah laborers and it's not to say that they're any less educated but they are more educated in in a certain field and then right so trade schools started popping up which is what our school was it was it it, was a yeah i think it it, it, like if you were honest about what it was it it was a trade school but um it was a trade school profit trade school it was a ford escort that sold itself as a bmw and i went in i wanted to make video games assassin's creed was an amazing video game at the time that that was was like video games I joined, yeah, I went there to make video games. Oh. And then I realized uh, about a year in that we did not have the programs, we didn't have the instructors, and we did not have the computing power to actually uh, do those things and use those things that were current in the industry. Yeah. We, like, we didn't. And, yeah. and, and the school was, uh, the, you know, that we look at our, our classes that we were meant to take on our matrix and it was becoming more about coding. It was becoming more about, um, the, the, the digital aspect. And I was, I'm a very visual, creative, artistic person. So I was like, yeah. let me look at media arts and animation. And I switched to that. Mm-hmm. Oh um, God. I, I, I remember perfect, the feeling the classes, the classes, uh, rolled over. They were the first intro of the year. Right. Cause I had to go into a, a foundations of drawing class, even though, and this is another hilarious part of our school, video game, if you wanted to make games, you needed yeah. to enter that school with a portfolio. The portfolio was supposed to be your skills demonstrated of drawing people, drawing vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. You did not need that to join media arts and animation. 
please somebody, God, please explain that to me. Nobody could ever explain that to me. So yeah. uh, me you realizing didn't need a portfolio. Then. You didn't need a portfolio to do media arts and animation. Yeah. Um, but you still had to start in a foundational class. I came in there already knowing how to draw, but I was like, oh, give it a shot. I don't, you know, this teacher, I had uh, Emerson, who was great. <laughs> I don't care who you are. And then Ross, who's polar opposite, but also great. Yeah, um, they're, they're great in different ways. And I, that's what I really liked about that was that there was always like, um, uh, there, there were two sides of the same coin. I like those professors. Like, you know, I like that, that you had like the wacky. The hard um, ass. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had like the, the cool the, guy. Yeah, yeah, you, you you know you had two sides of Christopher Lloyd. You had Doc Brown, <laughs> you know that he's like out there, and then you had more of the uh, passive angels in the outfield guy. You know, like <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it really consisted of okay, being in classrooms that were constantly crashing, but ha- having like well thought out projects, you know, big big picture projects, and then upon being frustrated, going out into like the the smoking area. And having these deep conversations about angels in the outfield and Jason Gordon Levitt's childhood. Yeah, what work. would that school have been without those people out Cigarette. in the front? Yeah. Uh, yeah, every break, every chance that we had was yeah, yeah to go be with our with our peers and God, to just deal with what we had just married. Like there, there have been children, know, there children I, on this planet. I'm going to exists. a wedding for two yeah. people that I knew one at a different time, and then I knew the uh-huh. other one later, and I love both of them so damn much. And, yeah. they, they, and they, they were there. I can already well because we're weird. Yeah, when I say weirdo, what is a weirdo? But so, God, <sighs> I saw a meme that kind of succinctly put like who these people are and it was like you weren't um like it's not like you oh god i gotta look it up this is terrible no no, no. i think it was something i think i know what you're talking about it's like you you didn't make you fun bit, of you, you bit yeah yeah you weren't made fun of because of like who you were or whatever but it's because you were so purposefully fucking weird and bit people on the way to class or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, it's not that you like anime. It's not that you love comics. It's that you, you come to class dressed as Deadpool. You know? or, yeah, or you you sit in a pool of your own socially awkwardness that you've never tried to relate to anybody else. That's insane. You can't live like that, you know? <laughs> For the love of God, bathe. You know, like, like no, 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 because, you know, it's a hey, communal man. environment. Like, it is, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, issues at home, whatever, that it's always going to come to class with you oh, and stuff like that. But, yeah, you're right, you're right. For the money but, we paid, those people should have had showers. And we went know? to the bill. We went to the specific school uh, of the fifty whatever schools of the same brand. Yeah. Uh, when I started there, and was told and shown all these things, all these ideas. This is what we do. This is the stuff that our students have made. Look at them. You know, the lies. We now we now know the lies about the, the names being attached to Disney movies or whatever. It's like we knew that that we ended up knowing that that wasn't true. We wait, hold on. we did. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Just to let you know. Wait a uh, minute. All that stuff on the wall. Was we were about my third year there when we uh-huh. we kept seeing the the recruiters come through with new prospective students and yeah. the, the things that they would tell them and we'd be sitting there going no they fucking didn't like no they were not no this is not you know we we knew it was we knew it was lies um, and that's why they got in trouble for that reason they got sued for <sighs> what is the technical for um, unfair recruiting practices I think right, so. which is yeah. which is lying about. Okay. here's here's the the real like thing like how do you sell 
education now. Like, you know, that, that story broke about, um, you know, Hollywood and, and, and corporate elite who were like buying an education for their children. To uh, those elite yeah. schools. Yeah. yeah to, to those elite schools. And it's like, okay, which we determined were elite. Okay. You didn't have to tell me that, that there, there was corruption in education. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. The fact that it's, like, oh, but like, that's what the media does. Right. Yeah. Right. You didn't have to tell me that there are degree mills where like I can, <laughs> I can buy a degree. Look, look, I, okay. There were people, there are people that certainly bought degrees in degree mills, but there are some there were some good artists that came out of degree mills, and yeah. they would have been successful anywhere. No, they, for real, because this is this is American education. The '90s uh, was rife with the media, the films of of uh, of business businesses, CEOs, bosses. Like, you just think of any movie and. It, uh, like Die Hard was about that at its core too, right? It was like a, the breaking of the system of people. They were in a giant building and blah 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 blah. Uh-huh. Corporations and and taking over. Um, but 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 and like American Psycho and, and stuff like that. We really made a prestigious education like such an attractive thing, and it, it meant that you would own a business one day and you'd become the CEO. What the fuck does yeah. that even mean, right? Um, and so I've always thought like the '90s was definitely uh, a big a big kind of time where the, the idea of higher education was the most attractive. And so, and then, but then schools became more expensive. That, that was a, not the beginning, but uh, you know, they became yeah. so goddamn expensive. No. They were free at one point. Colleges, the idea of higher education, it wasn't for profit until. Yeah. I always understood the books would be expensive, but it was interesting when like, even okay, that doesn't make any fucking sense. The classes themselves are expensive because it started with books and then they realized they could make money off of the classes themselves. Well, yeah. because the, the books, books in and of themselves were a sham because it's like, Oh, we have a different volume and there's something different in this volume. You oh yeah. We edited one paragraph. Yeah. It's now you $500 more. yeah. You can't learn anything from the third volume. The fourth volume is where it's at, you know, like Lord forbid you. Oh, Oh, oh and you copied yours. Okay. You, you know, Okay, I lived in I lived in Berkeley. I was one of the, I was I was a fucking townie in Berkeley. So UC Berkeley was right there. You know, I worked at the goddamn coffee shop, and I actually like like you know made lattes for for uh, those students. Yeah, for those <laughs> most, the most brilliant students in the world. Okay, and 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 you know, in addition to like coffee shops on every corner, the 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 business you saw more often than not in in Berkeley were were coffee shops. Like so, like like the, you know Kinkos and you know what whatnot. And why you know how could all of these businesses be on every block? How could they exist? Well, we well, made we they made money in photocopy textbooks that's how they existed and it's like you know i I, dude i always i've always known education at least in terms of like formal education was kind of a racket you know like just another racket it it, it, it became one it just it just did it's almost like is that a natural progression it's just it's a supply and demand you know like like, i mean like i'll tell you right now like i know i know people uh who went to much more prestigious schools Whatever the hell that means, yeah. Like you know, the prestigious private school, the prestigious state schools that are just as unsuccessful as, you know, a graduate of our degree mill. You know, like, um, I mean, like, it's just funny. Like, at least their school's still open. Like, it's they're not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, why? Because they're they're they're, they they fund um, municipal uh, programming and and look, geniuses have definitely come out of all of these places too. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, individual versus. That's what they told us. So, like, hey, we know we're not a name brand, but you know, if, if you apply yourself, you can be successful. It's like, yeah, that is anywhere, you know. Like, and when I 
right. When I started there, my, my, the big spiel that I got, the push for me to, to get into that system and be a part of that school and, you know, know that the next four years of my life were going to be spent here, there, uh, because that's a big thing. People don't really realize, like, this is going to be your life for X amount of time. Um, was, uh, uh, I, I guess I won't say her name, but uh, the director at the time of game and, and media arts, I believe. I think um, so. Yeah, that was the thing. Uh, the, uh, she put to me and my, the, the group of people who were just now being enrolled, she said, if you're here for your diploma, I'll print you out one right now, and you can be on your way. And I was like, ooh, what's this angle? What's she talking about? And, uh, and, and it was, it's pretty damn profound. She said, but if you stay and you put in the work, that's where you're going to be the most successful. You, it's not about that. So I loved that. I, I loved that I had somebody who told me like it was. Like, you know, we're not here for the piece of paper. Like, yeah, I'm not here for the piece of paper. I'm here for the education. And guess what? She lost her job because the school restructured. And uh, they were meant to be, and it's so funny because I was there for four years of watching uh, somebody lose their job. And then I, I made a petition and then I was told that that person could reapply for the new position. And I said, she's not going to do that. No. Taking away someone's job because of a restructure, because you're a business being run by idiots who don't know what's going on. Um, and so then, okay, well, so then there's two positions because no, no one person can't be for both media arts and game. Uh, so then there was two. And then what, two years later, two and a half years later, they did it again. Well, yeah. we're taking away the, yeah, we're taking away the individual. And now we have one person in charge of one, two, and three different programs at that school. And I was like, and we know who that person was and we know how hard that was on them because that's fucking yeah. insanity. And yeah. that's like, I look at, you know, just to talk about the, the post that school, uh, looking for jobs, guess what everybody wants. They, they're, they're looking for people who will do what I know is four people's jobs. You need four individuals to be focused yeah, on those three. But, yeah. boy, but these people who don't care and will just try to find somebody hungry enough to come in and do all four of those jobs for way less money and in way less time is such a sad, sad fact and sad reality. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that we're dealing that with was, right now. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like, I, I think uh, we have, we have a mutual colleague that said, Oh, you want to be a character artist? Okay, well, you know, that's like first year med school asking to do surgery right, right out of the gate. It's, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, you know, th that job that you're that you're so hungry for, that is that is really the top of the food chain there. You're going to have to start small. And it's like, you know, can you start small when you have, you know, uh, uh, 40, 60, 80 grand in debt when you when you're when you can you start small? And the answer is no, you can't. Hey, like, no. The answer is Absolutely and unequivocally, yeah. no. Like so many people who entered the business, they didn't get that corporate job right out of the get go. I mean, um, unless they you, knew somebody. Yeah. yeah, you you would need to. You would really need to. Um, so, <laughs> I, I think um, it's certainly working while I was a student. When you realize, yeah, design work. It's not that design work is in short supply. Uh, it, it's just that um, it's now a blue collar job. You know. Like, Isn't you, that crazy? Yeah, you said you just said something about laborers. You know, interesting. Uh, I, I was a laborer. I got paid, you know, eighteen dollars an hour to push a broom. You know, uh, same. I, I grew up uh, with a housekeeper, and then therefore myself was working as a housekeeper <laughs> as a child. You know, but yeah. I wanted more than that. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, and this, this whole thing. I was like, okay, well, at least you're doing what you love, and it's like, okay, you know, here's a. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm doing what I love, but I also deserve to be paid for it. 
some of our teachers and um, program directors saw the writing on the wall in terms of like, here's how much we're spending. If you guys aren't having a modicum of success, you know, at least as, as graduates of the school, then, you know, we all look bad. So I think so many, we were, we were at that school at that time. And and I think you realized it, right. That, that was, we were hearing that that was happening. We, we also recognized that there were less people, less, less bodies at that school than when Mm -hmm. we started there. Yeah, it was it was a, that in that respect it was a slow death, and then it just hit uh, like like uh, um, th- th- there was just a relapse where everything just really got worse, and like mm-hmm. uh, they were just like it, easily we lost uh, probably I would almost go as like uh, three quarters. Yeah, <laughs> like say 60, 70 percent. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like, you know, all of a sudden those conversations that we love so much in um, in classes and, and critiques and, you know, they were short. You know, you, you went from having, um, God, I think I remember having like a 30 something plus classroom, you know, at least 32. I remember because I had to bring my laptop in order to work in the lab where, <laughs> you know, and, and then eventually that being a four, five, three person class, you know. And then eventually guided study so you can just get out of here, you know, like where you have a project and, uh, you know, professor who's still trying, you know. And again, I like I will always respect teachers. I will yes, always yes. respect educators. And and there were some good educators there. They mm-hmm. also worked at other schools. Yeah. You know, they, they, had, they kept me there. Yeah. they And, and you know, some of them had the wherewithal. They're like, um, you know. Uh, to, to, to tell us, like, you know, I, I also teach this class at this junior college. I befriended a lot of my instructors, which I believe is something that every student should do, especially at a trade school where you're trying to get into the industry of where your professors are in. You know, they're there. They should be at one point. They will become your peers if you work hard enough. Right. And I and I just I just for, went the the process of how long that takes and was like I need to get to know these people on a semi personal basis but still keep them in mind as my professional um, you know teachers professors whatever but they were people I mean we're all people you know they're, they're being able to talk that's what it is it's being able to talk to these people who with no filter I, I there's a small filter of understanding that they are a professional you know, and a professor and above me or whatever. But at the the end of the day, we're all still people and we're all still trying to do the same thing. And none of us are going to make it out of this alive. (laughs) Radio Flong is proud to present the newest track from Experiment Haywire, Butterfly.
Vicklemouths. Did I get it? Yeah, yeah Fuktemouth. Fuktemouth. But... They're not a bit at the beginning, but it's pronounced like an F at the beginning of a Russian word. It's... And now, more from Paul Rugan, aka Malevish Squared. The Russian Bauhaus. Equality. Gender. In 1917, there's a revolution. Uh, women, w- women are enshrined by Lenin, full equality. They get the right to vote. For the revolution, Jewish people were treated and nationalities were treated as second-class citizens. So someone like Chagall becomes a painter. When he goes to St. Petersburg in 1905, he has to have a visa to go to St. Petersburg because Jewish people can only live in a certain part of Russia, the Pale Settlement. So that's Belarus, Ukraine, those places. So they can't freely travel across Russia. So before the revolution, women had a certain amount of places at art schools. Jewish people had a certain amount of places at art schools, but they were strictly limited. After the revolution, women can do it, can do anything, at least on paper, yeah? Not to say that patriarchy had fully gone, but Lenin was about smashing it. And, and you know, he's very sort of clear on it. So. A great artist before the revolution is, um, is the first superstar of the Russian avant-garde who mentored Melevich up to about 1912, a woman called Natalia Goncharova. She's the first superstar. She, she crosses over. Uh, she, when she goes to Mitza, which is the Moscow Institute of Painting, Sculpture and Architecture, she's limited to the painting school. Yeah, she can go to the painting school. Her father was an architect at the same institution. So it's really interesting that Goncharova follows her father to the same school, but she's limited to what she can do. She can become an artist. So painting was always secondary to her architecture. Architecture was the top. Secondary, secondary was sort of painting. Third was applied art, crafts, that kind of thing. Uh, but what was really interesting, she couldn't do that. When they set after the revolution, 
uh, when they set up Fortumus in Moscow in um, 1920, women could, women could become architects and they could join the architect's school. The Bauhaus would not allow women to become architects. So there's a difference between what's going on in Russia. There's something about the top of society, the Bolsheviks, Lenin, saying, look, we want full equality for proletariat, but we want women, minorities, to, to have an equal share of things. That doesn't happen even in the Bauhaus, the most radical institution of the Weimar Republic. So Lenin sets out by decree in 1920, and from it, it's a way of actually having a Soviet system, which is set up by left-wing artists and architects and the rest of it. Uh, but it also includes all different kinds of painters, realistic painters and, 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 that, and that kind of stuff. So there was a Russian Bauhaus. There was a Russian Bauhaus, which was called Fuktimus. Uh, which, 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 which translated, it's a, an acronym. There were so many acronyms after the revolution. <laughs> it was set up in 1920. It's the Higher Art and Technical Studios. And in it, they did have masters. Uh, many of the masters in the Bauhaus were actually men, but the masters in, in Fortunus included women. So the colour workshop, they had two masters. One was Alexander Vesnin, who became a famous architect of the Soviet Union. And the, and, and the other master of the colour workshop was Lubov Popova. So you could become a master as a woman in there. Uh, what was really interesting about the Bauhaus, we, women tend to be pushed into weaving, um, you know, which was like seen as a women's craft. There, there was a bit of a rebellion amongst the Bauhaus women and they, they, they picked Gunter Stalls and they said, you know, we want her to become uh, Mask and uh, Walter Gropius didn't want them to do that. He says, you know, you know, we decide who the master is, you don't decide. And actually the women rose up and said, no, we've got Gunter Stoltz. And what was even good about it, Walter Gropius gave in to a popular rebellion of active women. And, you know, people like Annie Elwes was involved and all the rest of it. What's also funny is that Gunter Stoltz herself actually had a card for the Bauhaus a student and wrote over it in pen herself, master. So, you know, for me, that's really, really interesting that the women of the Bauhaus had to sort of have a rebellion to achieve what was given by riot to the Russian women in 1920 in Fortumus because the society, the top of society is saying women must have an equal role in this society. It's wrong for women not to have an equal, equal role. In learning the avant-garde in Russia, there was support for it. Yeah, there was. You know, as soon as like the the Bolsheviks took over, uh, the 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 left the left wing artists, as they called themselves, were actually the only people that supported the revolution. You know, in terms of of artists, um, you know, so people like Tatlin, uh, Rochenka, Popova, Malevich, all the left wing artists straight away went and um, helped the revolution. Shugul had met the Commissar of Education, which later became the Commissar of Enlightenment, Anatoly Lunacharsky, when he was painting in Paris. You know, Lenin was really clever because what he did was he got, he got someone who was the best person for the job to actually sort of become the Commissar of Enlightenment, looking after culture, that kind of thing. In Vitebs, where Shugul lived, after coming back from Paris, because after the First World War happened, everyone had to go back to Russia or watch which country what they come from because of this war. He said to Chagall, could you set up a, a, 
a free people's art school in Vitebs. And, and Shakul did that. And Lizitsky was there. There was a whole range of artists there. And then Lizitsky went to Moscow in 1919, bumped in to Malevich and said, oh, why don't you come uh, to Vitebs? Uh, you know, we've got an art school there. Malevich's wife was pregnant. Unfortunately, in Petrograd in 1919, there was a civil war. It was hard to get food rations, you know, so his wife having a baby, they needed to get food. If you went to a little provincial town like Vitebs, which is now in Belarus, you could get food easier. So that was one of the things that persuaded Malevich to actually go to Vitebs. The thing about Chagall, Chagall's a great artist and, uh, you know, the most well-known artist of the Russian avant-garde. People probably see him as French, but he actually was, you know, started off as... as His stuff always looked French. Well, he, he, did study, he did study in France, you know, he did study in France. He, he becomes the commissar for art, set up exhibitions, to set up a museum, to set up an art school in Vitebs, where, where he's actually born. So Lunacharsky gives him the right to do that. So he sets up this school, he takes over a mansion of the local bourgeoisie, and he's very quickly he opens a school and he's got 300 students there some from 14, 15, some in their 20s. Because Vitebs wasn't that far away from the Civil War front, many of the students uh, come in during the day or in the evening in their Red Army uniforms with a gun at their sides. And so in the daytime, or in, you know, they're fighting in the Civil War. And in the evening, they come to the art college to learn to be an artist. And they're being taught by people like El Nazitsky, Malevich, and Mark Chagall, which is not really bad, is it? If he was going to be a you know, young Jewish tailor in Vitebs, because it's half the town is Jewish, all of a sudden, you're, you, instead of like sort of sitting in your dad's tailor business, you're there at Vitebs learning to be an artist or, you know, learning to be an architect and that kind of thing. Also, the other thing is in 1918, a year of the Russian Revolution, Chagall's asked to actually take over the old monuments you know, put new paintings over them, decorate the town. He's given he's given lots of red material to put over old monuments to show, you know, there's a new clock. We, we, we're not going to knock down these old buildings. We, ain't, we haven't got the ability to build new buildings, but what we can do, we can colour them with paintings. So Chagall does this sort of poster, which is a war on the palaces, peace on the huts. And the huts being, you know, the workers' accommodation, the peasants' accommodation. And it's basically, it's about sort of putting the, the everyday person, you know, covering the old monuments, the old churches, that kind of thing, uh, because they want these people to be a new ruling class. That's the idea at that time. Obviously, Stalin comes along a lot later and it changes that. But then Malevich comes along. And the thing about Chagall is he's a great artist. Polonaire says that he's surnatural. There was nothing called surrealism there. But, you know, he does art beyond... A, a, the natural way, you know, they're dreamlike and all the rest of it. Andre Breton, the, the father of surrealism, said that, and, and the key theorist of surrealism, said that the, the, the father of surrealism himself is not me, but Chagall. I think he was trying to get Chagall to become a member of the surrealists. But the point about Chagall, he's so individual, he can't join the group. And the other thing about it is he can't teach people his art. So he's in charge of an art school. And he hasn't really got a way of teaching people how to become artists. The thing about it is Malevich has. He's got his black square. He's got his uh, geometric shapes. Uh, Malevich is really polite to Chagall. Chagall's the commissar, the director of the school. 
and he says, can I come along to speak to your students to, to teach them about Cubism? They've asked me to. So he writes him a letter. So Malevich is not trying to take over there. You know, he's being very, very polite to Chagall. But the thing about Chagall, he, he's so individual that he hasn't got a system of art, where Malevich has got a system of art. What, that's what interests uh, El Lazitsky. Lazar Lazitsky starts off as, a, as an engineer, an architect, which he learns when he's in Germany. He then sort of comes back to Russia. And after the revolution, he starts doing these Yiddish sort of uh, illustrations because the, after the Russian revolution, the Bolsheviks, you know, support national cultures, you know, like these oppressed cultures to have an expression. So Zitsky starts off of that. And then all of a sudden he meets Malevich. Actually, he meets Malevich not in Vitebsk, not in Moscow in 1918. He meets him in 1917 in uh Malevich in 1915, 1916, gets sent, gets sent to the front. All of a sudden in 1917, there's a revolution. There's these very democratic vessels where people come along and they can vote. They call them workers' councils, they have peasants' councils, and they have so soldiers' councils. And Malevich is, becomes a corporal. And he gets elected from his uh, group to go to the soldiers' Soviet and very quickly becomes the head of the art section of that Soviet. During that time, he bumps into, you know, meets all these young artists. And one of those artists is, is called Lazar Lazitsky. And then in 1919, he bumps into him in Moscow and Lazitsky invites him to Vitebs, you know, to become a teacher in the school, which Malevich accepts. And then very quickly, uh, Lazitsky changes his name to L which is linked to a poem that Malevich writes. So, so he changes his identity from Lazar Lazitsky to El Lazitsky. Malevich has the black square. He also has the red square, but very quickly, Lazar Lazitsky or El Lazitsky is a bit younger than Malevich. And also he gets a bit more into the revolution than Malevich. Anyone involved in Univis, which is the uh, champions of the new art, which is suprematism, which which is got comes to have a big base in in Viterbs, where's where's like on their lapel or on their cuff of their their jacket a little black square which they sew on, but Lazetsky very quickly sort of says yes it's the black square for for art and culture, but it's also the red square of communism. So he combines the two and strengthens that. He, he's the person that that links the black square to the red square. Um, quicker than what Malevich would have done. And that's why uh, Lazitsky quickly goes over to Germany and uh, links suprematism and constructivism and, and uh, goes across to the whole of, um, you know, the, the European avant-garde, links with the Dardaris. It ran live between 1919 to 1922 in Vitebsk. It had branches all over Russia. So it had followers in, in different places. And... Uh, the thing about it is it got full into the life of Viterps. You know, it, it designed sort of backdrops for unemployed centres. It coloured the town with bright geometric shapes. Trams were painted with suprematist motifs. Um, you know, it was just an amazing sort of place. You know, it, it felt like that Viterps had come alive with all these bright squares, quadrilaterals, circles, triangles in all different colours. So, so Malevich transformed that, that town for a sort of couple of years. 
it did sort of end because um, the, the money ran out, the, the, the funding from the state was stopped because they had a mixed economy, which was called the new, new economic plan. But it's, it's probably the best laboratory. I think we could probably spend hours talking about all the great things that come out of universe and out of Vitebs. But it's, it, it, it was a place that didn't just stay in an art school. It went into the town and it coloured and brought the town alive for those sort of three years. Radio Flaw. The voice of Flaw. You're listening to Radio Flaw. You're listening to Radio Flaw. Now within the bounds of the law. Let me explain how Carter's can bring you natural regularity. Carter's little liver pills free and relax the lower digestive tract. Carter's increases fluid and stimulates natural muscle contraction. And that means regularity. So for natural regularity, follow the Carter's three-week plan. Get Carter's little liver pills. Greed. Consume. Good. You're just a consumer, bad. We are electricity, good. You're just an atom bundle, bad. We exist, we are reality, good. Everything is subjective, bad. This is pure naive greatness, the will to move and be sentimental, good. This is just kitsch, bad. And here we have Cut and Dry, the new track from Kling.
Radio Flom is sponsored in part by Carter's Little Liver Pills. Because what exactly do you have more of than Carter has little pills? Fixafile.com. Want a better price on printing? Let Fixafile design, create and print your next project. Diego Val Music at DiegoVal.com And our Grand Bibliophile Level Sponsor Squadcast.fm Remote Interviews for Professional Podcasters And Student Podcasters That's right, students podcast too Not just as professionals out here slugging it away from week to week From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world. This has been Radio Flom. Recorded live before a studio. Contributors this week, in order, were... Ali Elil de LND. Bill Maher. Steve Mehalo. Key Media. Wake the fuck up. Amanda Sanchez. Milk Surface. Jeu de Pré. Kevin Scott Brown. Blue. Louis Hernandez. Experiment Wire. Paul Rouen. Tristicia Langorem. Et. Clean. Jeanne Mehalo. Also featured were. Les annonces de. Jason Spear. Audrey Daguette. Et. Cliff Allen. Radio Flom is produced by. Steve Mehalo. Avec Milk Surface, comme lui-même. Theme music by Chelsea Davis. Sound design and engineering by Steve Mahalo. Radio Flom is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. However, recordings of contributors or guests of Radio Flom are still protected under international copyright law. Radio Flom contains works featured for review, opinion, critique, and or artistic transformation, and may contain adult content and nudity. Want to be featured on Radio Flom? Drop us a note at www.flom.us slash contact. Flom is a modern art game app, art history resource, faux historical art movement, that uses new media to generate interest in art history and education. Flom is an online connection to art history, music, and beyond through Tumblr, Instagram, and other social media. We are all Flomist, and you can be too. Donations graciously accepted at patreon.com slash flomus. We are at Flomus on most social medias. Flom is sometimes explained, but usually not. This is Cliff Allen saying thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, well, do something about it. Look at this one. There's one that's just sleeping. It's just sleeping. It's not doing that.
camping. It's terrible without us. Why do you want me to do? Beam him up. You want me to beam that guy up? Just that one loser there. Clearly, he went straight from school to Korea. Let me hit the no. Did you pick up an Australian accent? No, I did not. Alright. Yo! You there! I just, I want to know. I need to know. Do you miss us? Oh, fuck. It's a stream again. Alright, look. Let's get this over with. Oh, look at that, look! They miss us! Taking these clothes they off. They clearly miss us. I think he's confused. I don't think he's confused. I think he knows exactly where he is. Alright, I don't like it, but I'll put it on the board. I know exactly <laughs> where I 